Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. And if you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now. They have Bibles. You just wave to them and get their attention. They'll get one into your hands. And we'd like everyone to be able to read the Word as well as hear it on Sunday mornings. And then if you don't have a Bible at home, uh, feel free to take that one home and make a friend of it. So just get their attention. Sunday mornings, we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And uh, we are wonderfully uh, immersed in the day of his resurrection. And uh, we pick up another incident that occurred on that Sunday of his resurrection. Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, verse 13. Now, behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And so it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, supernaturally restrained, so they didn't recognize him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And then one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and have not known the things which have happened there in these recent days? And Jesus said to them, what things? And so they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And indeed, besides all of this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our own company uh, who arrived at the tomb early, they astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb, found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And then Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all, the prof all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then they drew near to the village, Emmaus, where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone on further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it's almost evening, and the day is far spent. And so he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they knew that it was him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while we he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? And so they rose up that very hour, returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven, the apostles and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to to them and the breaking of bread. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for every revelation that you give us of our Savior. We thank you, Lord, that the more we come to know him, 
the more we come to love him. Even though today we can't feel we could love him any more than we do today. We pray, Lord, as we turn to your word now, that you would be very actively and very powerfully at work in this room and in our individual hearts in opening this up to us, Lord, this revelation of Jesus, that this revelation would accomplish its needed work in each one of our lives and produce, Lord, in us what it's intended to produce. Thank you that we never have to turn to your word alone but always in fellowship with you. Lord, minister to us. And may the words of our mouth, the meditation of our hearts, Lord, as we study your word, be acceptable, be seen as worship unto you in thy sight, O Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Each of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances is, are very, very beautiful in their own way. Each one of them bringing great revelation to us, great emotion involved in each one of these scenes, great instruction, great warmth that comes to our hearts, our minds, and to our spirits by the Holy Spirit. And this is very, very true of Jesus' appearance to these two disciples while they were walking on the road to a village by the name of Emmaus. And an appearance that not only provided them with great instruction and revelation from Jesus for them personally, but evidently he was teaching them something here that it's important for us to know as well. And for that reason, it's recorded in the book. So it's not just a story about 2,000 years ago. It's something that God wants his people, the whole world, to know about Jesus all the way through to the end of the age. I want us to begin by noticing the physical and the emotional and spiritual condition of these disciples. We're told, number one, that they were disciples, that is, they're followers of Jesus. We notice in verse 13 that there were two of them. They were engaged in the activity of walking. As they're walking, they're walking from the city of Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus. We're told in verse 13 that that was a distance of about seven miles. And the way that you would walk at kind of a comfortable pace in those days, that journey would have taken them somewhere between two to three hours to accomplish. We're told in verse 13 that it's the same day as Jesus' resurrection. All of this happens on a Sunday. So the Jewish feast of Passover is over. There's the great exodus that now occurs out of Jerusalem. Everybody heading for their homes now. And Emmaus was where their home was located. And so they leave Jerusalem. Being in Jerusalem for that Passover was a very, very hard time for Jesus' disciples. They watched him be crucified at the end of great suffering, crucified on a cross between two thieves. They began their walk, we're told in verse 29, probably about two or three in the afternoon because they finish it before dark. And uh, so you add a couple of hours onto that time would have been five 
five o'clock or so. And, and we know this is all happening about the same time of the year as we're in right now, that we're starting to lose the sun. In those days, they didn't have street lights or lights in the house, all of that. You had daylight. You needed to get home by daylight. And so probably all of this is happening at about two or three in the afternoon. The road to Emmaus was part of a road that ran all the way from the city of Jerusalem to a coastal city in Israel by the name of Joppa. And so this tells us that they're walking west at the time of the sunset. That's what they're watching occur before their very eyes as they're on this two to three hour walk. That's what is is in before them. And I think that it's not, you know, coincidental because that sunset was a perfect physical encapsulation of what was happening inside of them emotionally, mentally and spiritually because of the events of the last three days. Their hope in Jesus as the Messiah, that's going down like that sunset. Their hope in him is the savior of the world. That that hope is setting just like that late afternoon sun. It was getting dimmer by the hour. We're told in verse 18 that one of the disciples name is Cleopas. The other's disciple is unnamed. We're also told in verses 14 and 15 that not only were they walking, but they were talking. And very significantly, we're further told what the subject of that their discussion was. They were discussing the events that occurred in Jerusalem during the previous days surrounding Jesus, his trial, his death upon the cross at Calvary, his burial. And now on that Sunday morning, these scattered reports of his resurrection we notice in verse 15 that they're not merely talking, but they are also reasoning with one another. That's a more uh, focused discussion that's occurring. The word reason there means to discuss. It means to reason. And it carries the idea at its, at its core, the idea of debate. This discussion is animated. This discussion is emotional. This discussion is one that has a high level of intensity. It's interesting to travel to the Middle East, and the Middle East is a little different than uh, the West or Europe or the United States, which were a little bit more uh, subdued in, in, in the generalization, were a little uh, quieter. You go to the Middle East as maybe on a trip to Israel or something and you're in the old city or you're some other place and you watch two men begin to discuss something that's important to both of them and you begin to look for a place you can duck away. I mean, it looks like they're going to get into a fist fight. Fifteen seconds later, they kiss on each other's cheek and they hug one another. The discussion is settled. They're both satisfied with it. And and uh, they just were reasoning something out and they go on about their business. Now, we're told in verse 17 that they were sad and evidently visibly so. This sadness is something that they're wearing on their face. They're carrying it physically in terms of maybe their posture, how they're carrying themselves. They're carrying it and revealing it in their voices. And we're given the reason for their sadness in verse 21. And the reason is they had lost hope. Notice in verse 21, but we were hoping, past tense, 
that it was he, Jesus, who was going to redeem Israel. So they say we were hoping we could translate it just as easily. We had hoped. And so they spoke of their hope in Jesus as the promised Messiah and the savior of the world in the past tense. They had a hope that he was the Messiah, that he was the Savior, but that hope no longer existed. That hope was dead and buried in the light of his suffering prior to the cross and ultimately because of his death upon that cross. And they had these great high expectations that he was the Messiah, but that suffering and that death had put an end to all of that. And then in verse 19, Cleopas gives... Jesus doesn't know that it's Jesus yet. They're still they're supernaturally unable to recognize him for who he is. He gives Jesus a quick review of the events of the last three days in Jerusalem. And you notice his description of Jesus, that he was a prophet, mighty in word and deed before God and before all of the people. I mean, as you read verse 19, there's like this hope there as voices rising in terms of what they had once believed about Christ. And then it falls just as sharply in verse 20 as he speaks about Jesus's death without any hesitation. He openly communicated to Jesus that the events of the last three days, Jesus's suffering, Jesus's death had left their hope in him as the Messiah, just completely dashed. Now all there was for them to do was to take the long walk home to Emmaus and then continue their processing of their sadness and their disappointment and to search their own hearts and minds for why they had apparently allowed themselves to become self-deceived concerning him. And that is the emotional and spiritual state of those two disciples as they're walking on that road when Jesus then joined them in their conversation as they walked. Now, let's just pretend we don't know the whole story. Let's just pretend we know that's their condition. This is all the the, the place that they're in. We don't know what Jesus does with them and all. We just know this is where they have sunk emotionally, mentally, and more importantly, spiritually. And so we ask ourselves, what in the world is Jesus going to do to resurrect that hope in their hearts once again concerning him as the Messiah. So what does he do? A group hug. No, group hug won't work there. Or maybe a little catchy saying. You know, something like hard times, uh, you know, uh, don't last. But uh, but oh, whatever that is, <laughs> that positive thing that they always say. Hard times don't last, but. Good people do or something like that. Now, here's one I do know. It's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. Well, none. Of... You know, you, if you ever watch television, these infomercials or even some of these real positive sermon things like that, it's just like, you know, that stuff doesn't help me when I'm here. That stuff doesn't really help someone foundationally and fundamentally when they're in this kind of of a place. Jesus knew what these people needed. He knew what they needed from him to resurrect their flagging 
faith. And it's fascinating to notice that Jesus' response to their crisis of faith, to their dying hope, was to give them a Bible study. And the single great point of this Bible study was to show them from the Old Testament scriptures that not only did the Messiah need to suffer, but that he could not be the Messiah unless he did. And that Jesus' suffering and death on the cross was not a cause for unbelief related to him as the Messiah, but was a reason for faith. And this is why he calls them, O foolish ones, and he declared them to be slow of heart. They were about to abandon their faith in Jesus as the Messiah for reasons which ought to have made them believe in him even more. Jesus began his Bible study in verse 26 with a question which also constituted the proposition or the point of his sermon. He said, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Now, you can hardly, you've got all these books on sermon preparation and all these different things. Many of them are very, very good. But the first thing they teach you on public speaking is, or in sermon prep even, is that you have to arrest the attention of the audience. You can hardly arrest the attention of the audience than to ask them the question that everyone is thinking and then to proceed to give an answer to that question. And that's precisely what he does here. He asks a question that has them all ears now because that's the very thing that they have been debating. And so this is how he gains their attention And so that's his point. That's his proposition. He's got their full attention, but it's not enough to get the attention of an audience. Now you've got to deliver the goods. You've got to answer the question. And so he has the burden now of proving his proposition that, yes, the Christ ought to have suffered and then entered into his glory. And in order to do that, he turns to the Old Testament scriptures, the law of Moses and the prophets. And you notice the words in verse 27 that he expounded to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. In other words, the entire Old Testament scriptures was written about him. The entire Old Testament from Genesis all the way to Malachi, every chapter, every verse, every paragraph, all of it, when it's properly understood, it points to the promised Messiah and it points to Jesus as that Messiah. Jesus spoke to the religious leaders of his day and he said, you do search the scriptures for in them you think you have everlasting life. But these are they which testify of me. Salvation is not found in knowing those scriptures or even obeying those scriptures. The true revelation of the Old Testament scriptures is to give us a picture of the Messiah who was promised so that when he came, we would recognize him for who he is, put our faith in him and then have salvation. They have the whole thing upside down. It says of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, that the volume of the book, speaking of the Old Testament, 
The volume of the book is written of him. Perhaps Jesus in this sermon began with Genesis chapter 3, with God's words to the devil following his tempting Adam and Eve to fall in that ancient garden of Eden, when God the Father spoke to the devil and said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall, speaking of the coming Messiah, shall bruise your head. He'll crush your authority and you shall bruise his heel. Declaring God the Father's promise to send a Messiah into the world who would be born of the seed of a woman, born of a virgin, and that Satan would indeed bruise the Messiah's heel. He would do damage to the Messiah, but that Messiah would ultimately crush Satan's power completely in his death and in his resurrection. And then perhaps Jesus went to David, the great psalmist of Israel, in Psalm 22, the great messianic psalm, which declared, out of the mouth of the Messiah, they gape at me with their mouths as a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The assembly of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And Jesus is posing the question to these two disciples. Why has the suffering of Jesus, why is the suffering of the Messiah surprised you since God spoke of it a thousand years before it happened through David? Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things? And then perhaps to King David again in Psalm 16, verse 10, where David wrote and said to God, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, and nor will you allow your Holy One, that is the Messiah, to see corruption a thousand years again before God had Jesus had ever come into the world. God had declared that the Messiah would see death, but not see corruption. He would die, but he would not stay in that dead state long enough for his body to begin to corrupt. And then to the prophet Isaiah, 740 years before Jesus was born, it was declared of the Messiah, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage, his face was marred more than any man and his form, his body than the sons of men. Why has the suffering of Messiah surprised you since God declared through the prophet Isaiah 740 years earlier that it would happen? Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things? And then to Isaiah again, Isaiah 53, he was, is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. And then to Isaiah again, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes 
we are healed. How has the wounding, the terrible bruised body, his stripes become a cause for doubting when God prophesied hundreds of years, three times the length of time of the existence of the United States of America as a nation into the future that it would be so. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things? And then to Isaiah again, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth and he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off death from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken and they made his grave death. With the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Has his death surprised you? How could it be any other way? You're stumbled by his death, but Isaiah declares he could not be the Messiah apart from that death. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things? And it wasn't just Isaiah alone. Daniel the prophet spoke in the same vein in Daniel chapter 9. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince... There shall be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two sevens, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Daniel prophesying that the angel of the Lord to Daniel recorded by him that the Messiah would be cut off. That is, that he would die. And on and on and on to fill not just hours, but you could fill days as Jesus would continue and doubtless did speaking of Abraham's willingness to offer his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. When the father came to him, God, the father said, take thy son, thy only son, whom thou lovest. You read the passage and you say, how cruel could God be? What kind of a heart of God could call on a man and say, take thy son, thy only son, how prized he was. And then to offer him whom thou lovest to offer as a sacrifice. And then before Abraham ever had a chance to do exactly that, God steps in and provided him with a ram to sacrifice in his stead. The highest point of Mount Moriah is in Jerusalem, on the north of Jerusalem today. Mount Moriah is a long ridge of a mountain, and the very highest point of Mount Moriah is Mount Calvary. When God called Abraham to offer his son on Mount Moriah, he would have never stopped not one foot short of going to the highest point of Mount Moriah in order to offer his son there. And it was at that Mount Moriah that God the Father offered his son, his only son, whom he loved as the God-provided sacrifice necessary to provide us with the forgiveness of our sins. We think of the Lord's institution of the Feast of Passover among the Jews at the time of Moses, 
when an innocent lamb needed to be sacrificed to protect from the coming wrath of God upon Egypt and for deliverance from the bondage of Egypt. And all of it is a picture of Jesus who would die on the cross in order to, to protect us and deliver us from the wrath of God future that is going to come upon this world and to deliver us out of the greater bondage of sin. And that lamb had to be without spot and without blemish in order to be an acceptable sacrifice, even as Jesus was blameless and without sin. And the blood of that lamb was to be applied to the doorposts on either side of the door and the lentil up on the top. The blood of that Passover lamb was put in the sign of the cross. All of it a picture of the one who would one day come and die on the cross to provide that greater deliverance and that greater freedom. Every Old Testament sacrifice, every Old Testament offering speaks of Jesus, the sin offering, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, every inch of the tabernacle spoke of him. Perhaps Jesus spoke to the two disciples of Moses's tabernacle, which had given been given as the place to worship the Lord. And under this great kind of wooden structure that was substructure that supported this tent that needed to move, that substructure was covered with four great coverings. The first covering was a covering of linen that was placed over all of that wood framing so that when you came inside, you would see the engraving upon the linen, all of the gold and the purple and the blue and the scarlet with figures of angels and cherubim as around God's throne, looking down on the worshipers. You would walk in and you would look up to heaven and there was a picture of heaven before your very eyes. But then over that great covering was then placed a curtain of goat's hair, speaking of Jesus as our scapegoat associated with the Day of Atonement. And then upon that curtain was a covering of ram skin, dyed, we're told, in bright red, symbolizing Jesus' blood. And then finally, over all of it, an outer covering made of badger skins, providing a water repellent uh, over the top of the tabernacle. And as you would look at that final covering of badger skin, it looked all gray. Drab. It looked all gray from the outside. You would look at it and there would be nothing that was appealing to the eye at all. Nothing that would give any hope in your heart that inside there was something of unspeakable beauty from the outside. It just looked drab and gray, completely unattractive. No hint of the beauty within and only upon then entering in. Could the beauty be discovered and appreciated? And so, too, a picture of the salvation that's found in Christ and the sinner who comes to Jesus by being born again. Only by becoming in Christ are we able to come into his life and to see a beauty and an appreciation that we would never otherwise know apart from being born again uh, to him. That's why the person that's not born again, they think we're nuts. They think we're crazy. And they don't understand that the fault isn't in us. It isn't in our 
inability to see something. The fault is in their inability to see something, to see the beauty of Christ, as Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. But the natural man, the man who's never been born again, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. But then you give your life to Christ and the Holy Spirit comes into your life and everything explodes to life. A literal vision of heaven in Christ. Every furnishing of the tabernacle spoke of Christ. It spoke of his humanity. It spoke of his deity. It spoke of his love, his mercy, his presence, his desire for fellowship. The Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the golden lampstand. And then on to the Day of Atonement, the holiest day of the year for the Jews, when they would bring out two goats and they would sacrifice the one goat for the sins of the people. But because no one goat could encapsulate the fullness of the work of Christ upon the cross related to our sins, they would take a second goat and the high priest would lay his hands on that goat and confess the sins of the people and the nation. The goat would then be released into the wilderness, never to return. So it took both of the goats to symbolize the full work of Jesus on the cross First, in dying for our sins, and then second, reminding us that because of his sacrifice, he has separated us from our sin as far as the east is from the west. And then there was the offering for the leper on the day of his cleansing, the brazen serpent of Moses' time, and then the Ten Commandments themselves. The first four of the Ten Commandments having to do with man's relationship with God, his vertical relationship with God. The final six of the Ten Commandments having to do with man's horizontal relationship with one another, all in the shape of a cross. The Ten Commandments was all about Christ. It was all about the one who would come into human history and allow us to have a personal relationship with God. And then out of that personal relationship, have what is necessary to have right relationship with one another. And if you think I make too much of it, Jesus himself, when he was approached by someone who asked him, what was the greatest commandment of all in the law of Moses? And Jesus declared to him, in answer to his question, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind and with all of your strength, the vertical relationship. And then he said, the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, encapsulating the Ten Commandments in those two great commandments in, in loving our neighbor as ourself, the horizontal relationship in a sign of a cross. And then Jesus went on to declare on these two commandments, hang, hang, what an interesting choice of words, hang all of the law and all of the prophets, knowing that he would one day hang on a cross to bring the fullest fulfillment of those Ten Commandments in the human history. And I'll tell you, just masterfully, flawlessly, beautifully, he drives home the point over and over again, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to have entered into his glory. Sometimes people will say, Christians will say, I don't read the Old Testament. I only read the New Testament because I want to learn about Jesus. 
We have no idea what we're saying. Don't say that to Jesus. That's not how he understands the Bible. It all speaks of him when we understand it correctly. It all builds up our faith. His rebuke of them in verse 25 is an interesting one. And it certainly is an interesting way to begin a Bible study by rebuking the audience. But that's another great way to get people's attention. Uh, Infuriated people will give you a, a great level of attention for at least some period of time. But he rebuked them and he rebuked them for their unbelief. He does not rebuke them for not believing the women. He doesn't rebuke them for not believing the angels. He doesn't rebuke them for not believing his fellow disciples concerning his resurrection. But he declared them foolish and slow of heart because of their unbelief in the light of the scriptures. He rebuked them for making a decision about their hope, a decision about him as the Christ based upon their emotions, based upon their own man-made expectations of what the Christ ought to have been and should have been, rather than basing their decision upon the Scriptures. I want us to close by looking at the result of Jesus' expounding of these Scriptures to the two disciples. We notice that His Word left them with a renewed faith, a restored faith. As Jesus took them Back to the scriptures, they went from we had hoped, from being sad and discouraged, hopeless disciples, to great faith through the scriptures. All of their doubt, all of their gloom, all of their wondering, all of their disappointment, completely swept away by the scriptures. And it is the word of God that will do that. Clichés will not do that. Hugs will not do that. Not in the depth of the confusion of different things that you and I will face in the course of our pilgrimage in this world. It is only the word of God that can have an answer to our spirits and to our hearts and to our minds. Only it has the heft. Only it has the weight. Only it has the witness of the Holy Spirit. Only it has all of heaven and all of God behind it. And that's why the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It is through the word of God that we come to know God. And the more we come to know God, the more we realize he is worthy of our trust and he is worthy of our faith. This Unbelief of theirs, this sadness of theirs was caused by a failure to know what the Bible had to say about what they were sad about. I think one of the greatest causes of unbelief or sadness in the life of a Christian and how it will sometimes live on for hours in our lives, days in our lives, sometimes weeks and months in our lives is a failure to take whatever the issue is that is at the moment producing sadness within us or maybe rocking our faith in in what it is that we're facing uh, in life and a failure then to take whatever that is to the scriptures to find out what is God's promise to us concerning these issues. 
Through the years, I've known so many people who've had a great crisis of faith because of some crisis that has occurred in their life, some great difficulty. And so they're ready to reject Christ or to walk away from Christ. Christ never lets go of them. But this is the emotion of the moment as if God has promised us in his word that this side of heaven, we're not going to have tribulation. Not only did God never tell us that Jesus told us the exact opposite in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. I'm bigger than anything that you're going to face. But these things that will rock us, these things that we will then even phone one another or talk with one another, even other disciples about do everything but go back to the word of God and say, what does the Bible say to Christians and about Christians when we face this kind of thing? Because only the Bible can give us the satisfactory uh, answer that we need. The second thing that I notice here in verse 32 is that the teaching of the scriptures left them with a burning heart, not heartburn, but a burning heart, a warm. It's a nice way of just putting it. They left them warm hearted. You ever read the word of God? And I know it's your experience it's a rhetorical question where you read the word of God. And as you're reading it, you're, you are left warm hearted as a result of that reading. I tell you, it happens all the time as we study God's word and as we read his word each day and in our devotional time with him. And he'll give us some kind of an insight or revelation that we've never seen before. Great. This book is a living book. Sometimes people say, you know, man wrote that. I said, would you show me the man that could write that? What kind of elevated opinions do you have of man? He could write that. I've read fiction. I've read nonfiction. I've read broadly my whole life. Don't tell me there isn't anything but an infinite gulf between that book and everything else that's been written in human history. Man doesn't write this book. It's a living book because it's authored by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will say amen to and bear witness to the truth of it to anyone who's in a search for truth. I think about our own experience where we turn to the word of God. Maybe we've read a passage, maybe the passage that we're looking at this morning, and we've read it 10 times. We've read it 50 times. Some can have read some sections of the Bible 100 times. You think I know that whole Bible, that whole passage inside and out. There's nothing I can't know about that passage that I don't already know. And but it's because it's in the devotional reading through the Bible in the year. And I'm going I'm going to give it another chance. And I'm going to read it again. And you read it. And all of a sudden, God causes us to see something we have never seen before. It's so obvious. You look at it and say, how could I have read this a hundred times before and not seen that great fact? Because here God knows in our pilgrimage, in our Emmaus road walk, our Emmaus road life, that a day would come when we would be facing this circumstance, this great crisis. And on this great time in our life, we would be turning to this passage. And he saves that revelation for that moment then to give us in our Emmaus road journey with him. It's the supernatural of all of it, and it warms our hearts. It's one of the great experiences of the Christian life to say, God, you did that. 
I never heard that from anyone. I couldn't have come up with that on my own. That is so like a bullet right into my head. He is so pure, so perfect. That's from you. It's a great experience in the Christian life. One of the things I love about this passage is it teaches us that the Lord loves to join spiritual conversations about him, especially among his disciples. And I'm glad that he does. Ever have a conversation with Christians where you're talking about not the 49ers? You're talking about something spiritual, some passage or some understanding of God. And you start to talk about this and this. And yeah, well, I well, what about this passage and how does this fit into here? And the conversation is is going around like this. And literally everybody's going to walk away from that conversation, two, three, four, five people, maybe. And all of a sudden is that conversation is the fruit of their collective wisdom, their collective knowledge, their collective talent. And then all of a sudden somebody says something or a light goes on for all everyone all at once. And as a result of the conversation, it's just like a chunk. The whole thing comes together. And everybody, if you were to ask them five minutes later, did you feel that? Did you sense that I know God entered the conversation, didn't he, right there? And he gave us a revelation we could have never come up with. There are times I leave conversations with people. Sometimes people will come up and they'll say, Pastor Damien, what about this verse or this passage right here? And I look at it. If it's really hard, I send it to Pastor Tom. (laughs) Some of you know. (laughs) If I have the answer, I'm going to wax eloquent. No, sometimes they'll bring something up. I said, well, you know, it looks like this. And then they'll say everything here. And, you know, well, we, if we look at this passage, this kind of thing. And then and then they say this and everything. And all of a sudden, boom, the Lord's involved in the conversation. And the whole light goes on in that passage. And I'm talking with somebody and I'm seeing the meaning of that passage like I've never seen it before. I can't wait to get out of the conversation now. Go to one of those benches on either side of the fellowship hall and write it down so that I never forget it. It's that supernatural. It's that wonderful. And that's the kind of thing that the Lord does even today. And then finally, we notice in verses 33 through 35 that he left them with a desire to tell others about what they had just learned from Jesus. So it's nighttime again. They don't have street lights and they're going to get in the car and drive the seven miles or whatever. They're going to do this in the dark. But this thing has happened and they think to themselves, there is no way we're going to sleep on this. What Jesus has just done, the revelation that he's just given to us, they made a beeline as fast as they could from Emmaus to Jerusalem to tell the disciples, the the twelve, the apostles, and the disciples that were gathered with them all about what Jesus had just done for them. I mean, this wasn't something they could keep secret to tomorrow. Everyone's got to know that this today. And the Lord does that same thing even today. I remember back in 1980 when I got going with the Lord and, you know, the, I, I tried to read, read the Bible prior to that. I used to play a little bit of basketball for Napa Junior College and we'd go on these road trips. And they'd put us in these hotels in Quincy. And way back then, I mean, we're talking about the dark ages. 
Way back then, you turned the TV on, there was like two, to get two channels in Quincy. So I'm looking around that room, nobody's got any money at all, got our meal money. You open up the drawer, and, I, and I, I, I've read more Gideon Bibles in hotel rooms out of just desperation for entertainment. And I just read that and say, people get something out of that? I don't get that. And then I go bowling. And then God comes into your life. And the book becomes a revelation of the one who died on the cross to save you. And pretty soon the whole thing just explodes to life. And the word of God just exploded to life for me as a Christian. And I thought to myself, everybody needs to know this stuff, everything that's in this book. And that's why I began attempting to teach the Bible and teaching in a home fellowship and attempting to teach it to this day. I'm so amazed by what's in this book. I want the whole world to know what's in the book, just like they had that feeling. This has warmed my heart. I want everyone to know what it is. And I know that that's your experience, too. Why is there no record of this sermon in the Scriptures? We have a record of the Sermon on the Mount. We have a record of the Olivet Discourse. How much would you pay to have a record of the handling of the law and the prophets by none other than Jesus himself? And yet the Holy Spirit does not include it in the book. But I think the reason that he doesn't is because he intends to give us that kind of revelation, not out of what he taught somebody else in the specific of their situation, but to turn each of our lives as Christians into an Emmaus Road journey. So that as we hit our points of sadness in our Christian lives, where our faith is perhaps being challenged by a particular circumstance, and we then turn back to the Word of God for an answer, or sometimes we're just processing things through in our journey on our way to heaven, the Bible isn't open on our lap, but we're driving the car, but we're thinking this thing through. And God gets, Jesus gets involved in all his conversations. And our whole world is spinning. And then Jesus says, have you ever thought about this to your heart? And he reminds you of passage. Have you ever thought about looking at it this way? Or maybe he just brings some great, passage that you've memorized in your past, or maybe you don't even have it memorized, but he brings it right to your heart. Some great thing to encourage your faith. And that verse becomes so important to you that you memorize it on the spot. And for the rest of your life, you'll be able to tell where you learned it, the circumstances of why you learned it. And it's because he engages all of our life. As, it's not, for us, this whole thing isn't a two or three hour walk. For them it was. For us, it's the totality of our life. While we live for him in this world, while we face the things that we face. And he's faithful then to take us back to the scriptures by his Holy Spirit. As we're traveling along, as the old song goes, life's narrow way. 
And he has a way of making all of life an Emmaus Road journey. And it's one of the things that makes the Christian life so fabulous. And he's faithful to do it. And he's done it in each of our lives as Christians. And he will continue to do that. The single great anchor for our faith and the fallenness of this world is the scriptures. Going back to the scriptures, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? The answer is not necessarily found in a change of circumstances or some positive mantra that people can give me. It is to go into the scriptures under the direction of God himself and find those passages directed to them that have to do with the situation that I am in and then to experience the warmth of heart and spirit that comes from that. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you've never ever trusted in Jesus as your Savior. Today's the day for you to do that. He'll never force himself on you. It's interesting in this passage, as they come to Emmaus, they're going to, it's time for them to slip off in, to go home. They don't know who he is. And so Jesus kind of gives the impression that he'll continue on without an invitation. They say, no, come on in. And Jesus, you know, kind of indicates he'll, he'll go on without a strong invitation. They say, no, the day is almost over and it's night's coming. Come in with us. And with that invitation, he then came into that house and then even further revelation unfolded. Jesus is such a gentleman. He will never force himself on you. I'll force myself on you. Other people will, but he never will. He will never force you to make him your Lord and your Savior. He will come in at your invitation. That's the way that it works. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after this service. They're going to have a badge on. It says prayer. You can identify them easily. And they would love to pray with you to invite Jesus himself and the person of the Holy Spirit into your life. And then everything explodes into technicolor. Because now you're engaged in the relationship that you've been created for. It's all there for the asking. All there for the receiving. Because Jesus has done all the heavy lifting related to our salvation. So that... He could make it a free gift for you and for me. He wants you to receive that free gift this morning. Take advantage of the opportunity. Don't leave this place unsafe this morning. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Jesus, with simple hearts sincere hearts we give you thanks for your faithfulness to us on our Emmaus journey home to heaven we just think about how many times you have stepped in and spoken just the thing we needed to hear from your word just the right reminder Lord to protect us we thank you for your rebuke at times We thank you always for your tenderness, even in rebuke. We thank you for your encouragement, Lord. We thank you for your great concern and zeal for our faith in you, Lord, and our relationship with you. 
Thank you for your supernatural involvement in every way in this relationship. We give you praise for it this morning. We bless your heart with our praise. And we ask it in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen.